Well, if you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the Old Testament book of First Samuel. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just pull out your smartphone and just Google First Samuel chapter 16. Or if you want to grab the Bible that is in the seat back there in front of you, uh, just turn to page 247, and you'll be right there at it, all right? And this morning, as I, as I was thinking about, okay, so we've got these, uh, this moment where we're thinking about people transitioning from one season of life to another with graduates. It's a great opportunity for all of us to dig into this idea about knowing the will of God. It's one of the age-old questions. How do I know God's will for my life? How can I figure out what it is that God wants me to do? And all of us face this question, not just at, at the particular transitions from like high school into the rest of your life, but this is one of those questions that we ask ourselves all the time. Like, how can I figure out what it is that God wants me to do? Now, as I started digging through this particular passage, I thought this was a, a great place for us to land. And then uh, somewhere around the middle of the week uh, on, on Twitter, there was this question or, or this little thread that started, because uh, pastors, we're, uh, we are, I, I, we're self-aware enough to know that we're an odd bunch of people, and uh, you don't have to laugh at that. Um, uh, and you don't have to say amen, all right? Um, but somewhere in the middle of the week, there was a pastor who posted, uh, what are the things that, that visitors never want to hear when they show up at church? You know, what is it that you, if you got to guess with is what, what is one of those things that you never want them to hear? And I actually thought about that when I was writing this, past, this uh, sermon, because the thing that you don't want to hear is that this sermon has 13 points to it. Um, <laughs> However, I did edit it down, and so it doesn't have 13 points, uh, but it does have nine. So for those of you that just got done with high school, this will feel like you're back in class for the moment. But I just want to walk through this passage of some real people who are dealing with the real question about how is it that we're supposed to know what the real will of God is, and, and you might want to jot down a few ideas along the way. Now, this is a passage that introduces us to a guy in the Bible named David. Now, eventually, he's going to become the king of Israel. And we're going to watch, if you read through his story, you're going to watch as David does some amazing things on behalf of God. But it is not at the point where David has got to decide whether or not he's going to face Goliath on the battlefield. That's not the spot where the will of God really got revealed to him. It's not when he was running for his life during basically a kind of a civil dispute in the nation of Israel uh, that he had to decide whether what was the will of God. It, it was not later on, but rather it was very early on in his life where the will of God gets revealed almost in a very unexpected kind of moment. Now, what happens is that the Israelites are in this promised land and they get dissatisfied with God as their king. They look around and they see all the empires of the world have a human king. And they cry out to God and they said, we want to be like the rest of the kingdoms of the world. We want a king. And God said, I'm your king. And they went, no, 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 no. We mean a real king, like one that we can actually see on a throne with a crown and a scepter. And, and so because of their disobedience and their rebellious nature, God says, okay, if, if this is what you really think you want, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you have the exact kind of guy 
that you want as your king. And so he, and so Saul becomes their king, and he is, he's tall, he's handsome, he's athletic. I mean, he's like the Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Prince Harry of the ancient world, all right? He's the guy, and he is an unmitigated disaster. And so their demand of a human king turns into just a mess, and so God says, okay, are you guys ready for me now to appoint the, the guy who ought to be your leader? And so when we get here to chapter 16, Saul has leaned on all of his vices, he's been all sorts of disobedient, and God is taking the kingdom away from him. So here, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel's a prophet, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. And Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Let me just start pulling a few principles out, kind of section by section. The first thing I want you to see about how do you know the will of God, I want you to know that it's okay to ask questions. It is okay for you to ask questions of God. There is not a single question that you're ever going to ask that is going to scare God off that somehow that he is not going to be able to answer, that somehow he didn't see coming. God tells Samuel to stop mourning over the fact that that Saul is not going to be the king. And so in the face of that, Samuel asks a legit question. I mean, this is not like a question that just kind of comes out of nowhere. This is a very legitimate question because Saul is wheels off crazy. I mean, this guy is completely unhinged and unbalanced, and so this is a legitimate question. What if he finds out he's going to kill me? Now, this is not Samuel asking out of disobedience. This is not him asking out of questioning the nature of God's character. There's nothing inherently wrong with you asking big questions to God, but, but we've got to do it in the right spirit. We should never somehow undermine God's character, somehow like he's not trustworthy. This is what Adam and Eve gave into in the garden when the serpent came and tempted them and said, you can't really trust the character of God, so go do things your own way. This is Samuel asking a legitimate question in a legitimate moment of God, how do I handle this? So it's okay for you to ask questions in order to have an informed obedience to God. Secondly, How do you know the will of God? you got to be aware of this. God often reveals the next steps, but not the entire plan. Don't you just kind of wish that you could open up your email account this afternoon and there would be a PDF file in there that's like the plan for your life for the rest of your days? I mean, you could just download the PDF file, you could just open it up, here it is, authored by God, now I know what to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, I got it all mapped out. But that's not the way life happens. He doesn't send you a three-ring binder in the mail. Instead, God tells Samuel the very next steps. But do you notice, he doesn't tell him exactly who he's going to anoint. 
He just says, here's the next step. Go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, and when you get there, I'll tell you what to do next. And we see this in the Bible a lot. In the, in the New Testament, there's a guy named Philip that, that God tells him to leave a city where there is a spiritual awakening happening, where he's been preaching and all of these people are coming to faith. And he says, I just want you to go down the road. See that road over there? Just start walking down that road. And Philip's he doesn't tell him who he's going to meet. He doesn't tell him what he's going to do. He doesn't tell him what's going to happen on the road. He said, I just need you to get out on that road. And so he heads out because that's where God said to go. This, when, when, when we don't have the whole plan laid out in front of us, it actually builds faith in our lives that God, that he has a character that we can trust. Because let's face facts. If you did open your email account this afternoon and you had the PDF file from God, that told you what you were supposed to do every day for the rest of your life, we would be tempted to never pray again. We would be tempted to never engage with God ever again because I got the file. I got the thing. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do three Thursdays from now. But instead, when we operate knowing that I got to take this next step in faith, I got to take this next step in faith, it's not that I've got faith in my faith, and it's not that I have faith in my ability, it's that I've got faith in the one who has saved me. And so it builds faith in who God is. A third point from just these first few verses is that you can rely on God's character because it never changes. Knowing God's will is about relying on his character because you've seen his past activity. When I think about how it is that he leads Samuel here, why is it that Samuel is willing to do what God directed him to do? It's because of what God has already been doing in the past. Samuel, if you follow his story, is conceived to parents who didn't think they could have children. He is dedicated in the, in the temple to serve for the rest of his life. He is called as a child into the service of God. He is empowered as a prophet. There's all sorts of a backlog of walking with God, seeing God's faithful activity in his life, that when God says, just go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem and I'll tell you what to do next, that Samuel's like, okay, I can do that because you've already been doing all sorts of stuff in my life. There's no reason for me to doubt you now. The great writer, C.S. Lewis, who wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia but was a philosopher at heart, he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, something about us as human beings that we need to take as a warning. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's good. Let me read it again. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I mean, we chase after all sorts of stuff rather than just continuously remembering all the things that God has been doing in our lives that, that prove that He is trustworthy, that we can just keep walking alongside of Him. Samuel had no reason to doubt what God was doing in the present because of how he had watched God operate in the past. Now, let me read verses 4 through 10. It says, Samuel did what the Lord directed, and he went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? They, they say this because they know he's the prophet. In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse, this is the guy whose family he's come to visit, and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. Now let me pause and say, Eliab is the oldest of the sons of of Jesse. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Number four, God measures success differently than the world. Samuel arrives and he calls for Jesse. And Jesse does what any normal father would do in these ancient times when a prophet shows up and he knows that somebody's going to get picked for something. That is, he begins to present them in the obvious choices of order, the oldest son down to the youngest. And so, but one by one, they keep being rejected. And Samuel has to say to Eliab, the oldest son, the best-looking guy, the one who's got it all together, you're not the guy. And in verse 7, God reminds Samuel of this incredibly important principle. Humans don't see what the Lord sees. For we look at what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. God reminds him, don't just look at the exterior. Don't just look to see what the earthly measures of success are. Look at the heart. If you want to know the will of God, if you want to search for the will of God, if you want to get to the point of knowing the will of God, it's all about your heart. Eliab was the obvious choice to the world, but not God's will. And it goes against the grain of all the culture. And God often chose against the grain of the culture. God chose a guy named Gideon to be a judge over Israel, even though he was the smallest guy from the smallest family, from the smallest tribe in Israel. God, in this point, is going to choose somebody that nobody else would have chosen. When when God sends his son, Jesus, he sends him to a little town called Bethlehem that's on the backside of everything, that's not an impressive place. And then he has him grow up in Nazareth, which people are just absolutely stunned that anything good can come out of Nazareth. Because God measures success differently than the rest of the world. Which leads me to the fifth point here which is incredibly important as I think about how it is that we search for the will of God. And that is, the condition of your heart is more important than the content of your resume. The condition of your heart is always going to trump whatever you have on your resume. Are we willing to align ourselves with the desires of God? Because it has a whole lot more to do with where your heart is than where your head and your hands can take you. It's so much more than how smart you can be or how skilled you can be. You can be the smartest and most skilled person in the room, but if you don't have a heart for God, then it doesn't matter. God can't can't use you at that point. Later on in David's life, who's going to get chosen as king, he is referred to in the Scripture as a man after God's own heart. 
He has a heart like God does. He had the same desires that God had. Now, did he trip up? Did he fail? Was he flawed? Absolutely. But he was a man that had the desires of the kingdom over and against his own life. This is the core of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the place where heaven and earth collide with one another in that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself like in the form of a servant, and he humbled himself even to death on a cross. It was his heart that he wanted to keep aligned with the things of the kingdom. That's what our Lord does, and so that's what we do. It is the condition of your heart that really matters, not what you can build up on your resume that can be impressive to the rest of the world. So we continue on here in verse 11. Samuel asked him, Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep, Samuel told Jesse. Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. And he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. And then the Lord said, Anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Samuel asked if there was another son. But Jesse had not previously even considered that David could be useful. I mean, the prophet of God was coming to town, and Jesse thought, well, I need to have my best with me. So David, little David, youngest David, why don't you go out there and keep the sheep? Uh, go, go watch the flock while the real guys go meet with the prophet. There is no indication that we have that David had been spoken to by God earlier. We don't get any sense from anywhere in the Bible that while he's out keeping the sheep that somehow God knocked on the door of his heart and said, oh, David, and by the way, even though you're having to keep sheep right now, I got something else for you later. But rather, what we get is just by showing up when he is called, something amazing happens in David's life. He simply showed up with the summons, and he accepted the calling, and he accepted the anointing. Now, there's no great statement that we have recorded in the Scripture of what Samuel says. We don't know what he said at that moment. But we don't have it recorded. We don't know, and so I don't want to argue from silence, but right here in the text, Samuel, he doesn't tell him that he's going to face danger. He doesn't tell him about the temptations. He doesn't tell him that Saul is not going to want to leave the throne. He's going to have to wait. Instead, what we get is a humble, youngest brother, unexpected guy who just 10 minutes ago is tending the sheep, has now been anointed by the prophet of the, of the kingdom, and he has accepted the calling, and he's going to have to follow God. Which leads me to my sixth point. Faithfulness in the moment is always greater than our best conceived strategies. Faithfulness in the moment is what really, really matters. Now, were there people in Israel who, had a, who probably had a plan B? Probably so. 
Because like I said, Saul had been a disaster. Saul had leaned on all the wrong vices. He had been rebellious. The kingdom of God was going to be ripped from his hands, and, but he was not going to go down without a fight, literally. He was going to fight for the kingdom, for the kingship, for the crown. But David has to decide in this moment that he's going to accept the anointing from the prophet that he's going to be the next king of Israel. And David didn't have his whole life planned out. He didn't plan to become king. He didn't plan to rule over his brothers. He didn't plan to rule over the nation. But he chose to be faithful in whatever assignments were given to him. Now, Jesus said something similar to this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verse 10. He says, "'Whoever is faithful in, a, in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little will also be unrighteous in much.'" You know, it's, are you faithful with what God has given you right now in this moment? It may determine whether or not He can give you more. Sometimes we wonder, why is it that I don't make any progress? Why is it that, that God isn't using me in other ways? The, the question that needs to be asked and answered is, are you being faithful in this moment with what God has given you? But here's something beautiful that happens when David accepts the calling Number seven, the calling of God is always accompanied by the power of God. You can rest assured that if you would be willing to accept God's calling in your life, if you're willing to follow His plan for what it is that will happen next, you will be accompanied by the very power of God. With David, he is filled with the Spirit. With us as believers, we are assured by all of the New Testament that at the moment of our salvation, we are accompanied by and sealed by and filled with the Holy Spirit. It is natural walking in step with the Spirit. You will learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Again, this is the message of the gospel. This is how Jesus transforms us, is that he does not just say, I want to give you the get-out-of-hell-free card so that you can avoid an eternity of judgment for your sin, which we all deserve. But rather, what he says is, I'm going to call you to myself. I'm going to save you and make you a part of my family and a part of my kingdom, and I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to empower you so that then you can walk in the will that I have for you as the church and for you as a believer. This is what the gospel does. So now we go on to verse 14. It says, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre, a harp. And whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you will feel better. And then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. And then verse 18 reads, one of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. And then the passage goes on to tell us that he sent for David. David is the heir apparent, but Saul is still on the throne. 
But Saul is being rejected because of his sin and his rebellion, and so the Lord sends actually evil into his life to torment him in order to alert him and alarm him of his distance from the kingdom of God. And only for some reason music can relieve him. And it just so happens that David is an excellent musician. Number eight, God is preparing us for assignments, relationships, roles, and moments that are better than we could ever imagine. Right now in your life, God is doing something to get you ready for what's next. The question is, are you just going through the motions of what is the now, or are you looking to the future? That whatever it is that God is doing with your right now, He's getting you ready for what's next. When David was just the youngest member of Jesse's household, he never knew that being a shepherd would one day lead him to write the 23rd Psalm, what we know as the 23rd Psalm, that would comfort people for 2,000, 4,000 years past his life. He could have never known that. He could have never known that his work as a musician, learning how to play the harp, the lyre, learning all of the music that he must have, would prepare him to have written so many of the other psalms that would become the songbook of the Hebrew people at the temple. He never knew that being a warrior in the field, protecting his flock, would one day prepare him to be the king general of the people of Israel. He never knew. But when you are working now faithfully to God, faithful in your relationships, faithful in all the roles that God has given you, it's not just to get stuff done now. It is that God is preparing you maybe for what is next. In his providence, God had prepared David with the skill that was going to be necessary to be the king. And so God is wanting to refine your character and your life for what he has next for you. And David's reputation had preceded him to where they knew, people knew, there is this guy, and he knows how to play the lyre, and he can be helpful for you. Even the craziness that David would be invited into the court of Saul, the guy that he is now anointed to replace, was going to be preparation. In a lot of ways, how not to rule the kingdom, which leads me to my last point. Knowing the will of God comes with the willingness to serve until asked to lead. And leading is so much easier because you get to bark orders. You just get to tell people what to do. Service is the hard part. Service is what has to crush our ego. And that's what leadership is. It is a daily exercise of killing your ego. And if you want to live in the will of God, if you do, I do, if we do, it's got to come with the willingness to serve. When David, the future king, was serving Saul, the outgoing king, he could have taken a posture of pride a posture of entitlement, a posture of I'm just waiting for God to move you off the throne so that I can move on. But instead, what you read as David serves quietly and humbly is that he chooses to be faithful. 
He chooses to trust in God's timing. And he plays music, and he acts as a guy who carries other people's armor around, and he serves the ungodly, depressed, spiritually oppressed, rejected king. And this daily faithfulness shapes his character, and it deepens his prayer life, and it molds him to be the person that God can use as the true leader of his people. One of the things that that we can compare between Saul and David's life is that Saul never went through the desert moments of servitude. Saul was immediately just catapulted into the place of leadership. He was just immediately put onto the throne. He was chosen as the best looking, the most athletic, the nicest guy, uh, most likely to succeed from his high school graduating class kind of guy. And it was immediately, let's just get him to the throne. Whereas David has to go through the desert of servitude, the desert time of, of fulfilling other people's requests and wishes, the desert time of helping other people uh, be comforted in their times of sadness and grief and mourning. David goes through the time of his life of serving so that he'll know what it really does look like to lead. And he had multiple opportunities, David did, as you read through the story, to take matters into his own hands. There's even one particular place where Saul is trying to hunt David down. David's got a group of guys that are helping him hide in caves and in the wilderness. And and Saul is in a, a very dark and private place in a cave. And David is in the cave. And he could he he has a moment where he has a sword. And he could just run run it right through Saul. But he has to make the choice that he's not going to jump over God's timing, that he's going to serve until called to lead. It's this place where we learn that the immediate immediate obedience to God's calling is always going to be worth the cost in the long run. Immediate obedience is always worth it. So what is it that God is calling you to? There's some of you that Maybe God is just calling you to faith. You find yourself in this place where it's like, if this is really the way that God works in our lives and He's full of grace and mercy and He actually does have a plan, like I want to know the God that, that sends Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to pay the penalty for my eternal salvation. Like I want to know that God. Maybe that's what He's calling you to today. And if that's the case, we want to help you walk that journey of putting your faith in Christ. Maybe for some of you, it is the calling that you know that you've skirted and scooted around what God's will for your life is, and you've kind of kept your yes off of the table for fear of what He would ask you to do, and it's time for you to put that yes back out there, that maybe He's called you in this season of life into a ministry here in the life of the church that you've kind of stiff-armed a little bit because it would be hard, or it would be inconvenient, or you just didn't want to at the moment. Maybe for some of you, the, the call that God has is just a call of comfort. Like, it's just been hard lately. I mean, relationships have gone sour and sideways, or maybe your own life, you've just given in to too many temptations, and you just know that there is this big, huge boulder in front of you and God of sin that, that you just need the comfort of forgiveness. You need the comfort of God's reconciling nature. Uh, 
Maybe it is that there's somebody here today that God has called you to move away. We don't want you to leave, but if God's called you to missionary work or ministry somewhere, we want to we want to launch you out with grace and joy and celebration. I don't know what it is that God's calling you to, but I know for fact that God's called us all. He is a God who calls. He is a God who is present. He is a God who deeply loves. So I want to invite you this morning to answer His call. Let's pray together.